Hello, everyone. This is Scott Weinberg. Welcome back to a patron episode of 80s All Over. This is a very special one, and I'm going to let my co-host, Drew McWeeny, explain why. Uh, I One of the things that I really love about being a member of LAFCA is watching the way it has changed dramatically over the uh, five or six years I've been a member now. When I joined... True. And I, that would be the Los Angeles Flag Collectors Association. Exactly. Um, we collect flags of the world. We twirl them. Um, we display them and we uh, march in parades. It's really... Oh, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant my other organization, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. Uh, and when I joined, I was one of the younger people there. And it felt like I was sort of alone on a generational island, that has dramatically shifted over the last few years. And it has been delightful watching new members come in, change the way LAFCA feels in our meetings. And one of the members who I've really enjoyed, uh, just your contributions, and I'll never forget the first meeting you showed up at, where someone was brought up as a possible source of tribute or a possible figure of tribute, and you went, no, bullshit on that. And I'm like, first meeting, I am so happy this person's here now. Uh, let me introduce the one and only April Wolf. Hi. Thanks for having me on and enduring my own bullshit. <laughs> uh, to to uh, our listeners who may not be aware, April does a podcast called Switchblade Sisters, and uh, every episode is a specific genre film, and she sits down with a female filmmaker to discuss the film and all different angles. Uh, just to give you a taste, this is what I sampled. Oh, and they just celebrated their first year, so they're like a 14-month-old podcast, right, April? Mazel tov. Uh, but just to give our listeners a taste, uh, if you're not already downloading Switchblade Sisters, the first four episodes, she discusses Bone Tomahawk with the awesome Emily Gordon. She discusses Near Dark with Karin Kusama. She discusses The Invitation with Heather, Heather Matarazzo. And she discusses Pan's Labyrinth with the amazing Issa Lopez, whose Tigers Are Not Afraid is still not out in America and is stunning. Would you agree, April? It's one of the best kept secrets that, that we have in film right now, I think. Yes. April, I want to just open this question. I have a few theories, but it would be much more interesting coming from you. Where does this bullshit theory that women don't like horror, where did it come from? I think it's because of a general uh, idea of women's dispositions and, and being, um, you know, averse to violence. Violence is usually the sticking point. I think a lot of men think that or have thought that women didn't like violence, but in my experience, it was the women who wanted more of it. <laughs> and, you know, I think you're seeing that in the movies that women are making in the horror genre. That they're, you know, uh, just look at Raw. I just keep thinking about Fantastic. blood and gore. And, you know, there's, there's kind of like this desire for these terrible, disgusting things that we have that I don't think women, you know, maybe they just didn't feel comfortable expressing that before. But now everything's kind of out in the open. Mm. Drew, any theories on that? Why, where did that, that bullshit theory? Because I'll just say real quick, growing up, uh, my grandmother, uh, uh, everyone knows, recorded horror films for me off HBO. My sister, more often not, watched them with me. And my mother, while not really into horror, allowed it. So, like, the idea, when I got the early internet and I started seeing this women don't like horror thing, I thought, all right, well, that's just a silly cliche. Only a child would believe that. But it grew and grew. It really, and I don't understand it. It's nonsensical. Drew, tell me if you agree with this theory. April, I'd love to hear your theory. It I, I is. Think it's, I think yeah. it's like any cultural gatekeeping. I think there's a certain amount of it that is real, and there's a certain amount of it that is inflated simply by volume. And I, I think that there's probably, look, one of the things about horror that I didn't totally get when I was younger was I felt weird about the fact that victims were so frequently one-sided in terms of horror. And it there was an era during the 80s, especially, where it felt uncomfortable to me. And I have no idea. That wasn't me saying so women can't enjoy this, but it felt weird. And the the movies that felt to me like the ones that crossed over from that were the ones where it wasn't just about victimization, where it wasn't just like a laundry list of atrocity and where there were characters and actual things happening. And I think that's always the, the thing that has just, for me, delineated the good and the bad and horror. But I think that there is so much of the sort of red meat version of it that, especially in the era where I was young, I could understand if somebody was turned off or put off on a, a just a blanket level. Um, 
But I, I think some of it's just the the volume of people who try to be cultural gatekeepers. And, you know, you can ignore that. Anybody who tries to tell you what you can or can't like or anybody who tries to establish what anybody else theoretically would or wouldn't like, that's just an exercise in nonsense, I think. Yeah, I think my theory is that uh, men and women like horror equally. It's just that men are often hesitant to admit that they were scared and women are not afraid to admit that a movie scared them. I, I really think that's it. Like you. Yeah. I mean, and so then it becomes like, oh, this is for guys. It didn't scare me. And the girl would say it scared the shit out of me. And I liked it. You'd say, oh, well, you're just a girl. Well, it was supposed to scare you. So there you go. You, you know, I just uh, it's like that nonsense thing that we got where women aren't funny. It's just, it's just like anything to get a click, even if it's just nonsense. Um, but yeah, so everybody downloads Switchblade Sisters, support the show. It's fantastic. And uh, I think one of our main topics of discussion is going to be 80s horror. Uh, April, I don't know your age and I won't ask it, but I assume you are uh, experienced in the vast realm of 80s horror to some degree. Yes. I mean, I was born in the 80s. I will tell you that. Okay. Um, but uh, as I've said so many times before, my grandparents actually raised me, and um, you know, I started watching horror when I was very, very young. So, I mean, like the first movie I can remember watching was Sleepaway Camp when I was three. We had rented it Ooh. from Rite Aid, and um, that's <laughs> the first the first movie I can remember. We just had like a thing where I would like I would sit on my grandmother's lap and my uh, sister would sit on my grandfather's lap and we all had blankets that my grandparents would put over our eyes if they felt like it was something that was too much for us. Oh, that's funny. And um, so they just had like a system worked out and it was very funny, but there are, too, there are also too many things that they were not quick enough with the blanket with <laughs> well i think that's i think that's part of the fun of when you're when we were watching movies when we were younger and home video was really the primary source of a lot of our first exposures to the transgressive or the the sort of boundary breaking a, a lot of times our parents were in the room for that and there's inevitably the moment where it's already happened and then they react and I've noticed it with my own kids. If I don't react, half the time they don't realize something crazy just happened. Wow. There's a lot oh, of stuff that has so gone by true. them where if I didn't react, they were fine. And so, my parents frequently were the ones where I was like, okay, wait, something interesting just went on, and I don't know what. <laughs> remember my parents took us to see a drive-in of something and Excalibur, and my mom was fine with most of it, but during the early sex scenes, I remember as clear as day her turning around and covering my eyes and making a big deal about it. And every time I think about Excalibur, I remember that odd memory. And, and uh, But yeah, it was violent as hell. They didn't seem to care about that so much. Um, uh, and, and did you ever, like, growing up, did you ever, did you guys ever um, love a horror movie and then be hesitant to show it to your parents because you thought they wouldn't, they, not only would they not get it, but they might want to, like, curtail your activities? No, no. And in fact, I mean, ever, like, my grandparents, um, I still call them every week and um, talk to them about the horror movies I've seen. Oh, um, and so it's not, I mean, they're, they're older now, so they have a harder time getting through movies. They kind of fall asleep. But if there's a good one, I think that will actually keep them awake, then I will tell them about it. Nice. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I just remember being, you know, you'd be blown away by something like Evil Dead or Reanimator. And I tell my sister and I tell my friends, but don't bring it up at dinner because you don't want your mom to check out those movies and see what you're watching. <laughs> yeah. Horror was never something I shared within my family. And you know, I've, I've talked before about the fact that my dad would shred Fangoria and treated it worse than porn. Like that magazine was 100% off limits in my house. And so I, I got the message pretty early on that horror was not my parents' bag. And so any, any of that that went on was away from them. And the mistakes that were made were made by uncles or made by babysitters or, you know, it was a, it was a baby. It was an uncle who took me to the exorcist when I was seven, which for me was super young. I can't imagine having seen something that transgressive younger April, but we have a, a common friend, Aaron Morgan, who talks about seeing uh, at the drive-in the beast within when he was three. And that blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, you, April, you said you saw Sleepaway Camp at three. G give us some of your other uh, formative, uh, uh, impactful horror, early horror movies. Uh, April Fool's Day was very formative. Ooh, good one. 
just even, I mean, walking, we, our video store was the Rite Aid. Um, and so we would walk down there and um, always see the April Fool's uh, uh, cover. Great cover. What's your take on the infamous controversial ending among horror fans? Some love it, some hate it. I don't know. I go back and forth. I think I would like to see it again. It's been years since I've seen some of these movies that I saw when I was a kid. And then when I rewatch them, I'm like, oh, shit, I see this very different. <laughs> now, that's it's that's a big part of what we've talked about on the show is I I feel like for many, many years as a professional critic, I have taken the word of a 15 year old who may have been insane as far as what I thought about certain movies. And I'm looking back and realizing, well, I haven't seen it since 15, 16, 17. That is a really interesting way of putting our podcast. It's like me sitting down with my 16-year-old self, and my 16-year-old self says, Bachelor Party is awesome. And I sit down as a 40-something. Like, oh, buddy. Oh, we got to talk, man. Yeah. And this, it does. It feels like that a lot of times. April Fool's Day probably felt like a little like your movie when you were growing up because that that was April April Fool's Day. It yep. did. That was something that I really appreciate. We probably rented that a million times. The same thing with Critters. We rented Critters a lot. Critters. The first one is great. The second one's fun, and I definitely look forward to revisiting uh, April Fool's Day, Drew, in '86. I did. I did too. That's um, and that's one that uh, when you talk about the cover. There's a whole era, there's a whole, I think, group of film fans who are never really going to understand that sort of cruising a video store and how much the appeal of a cover mattered. Like, man, there were covers that I would circle for months before I came back to them. But the first time you saw it, you're like, okay, it's on the list because that cover's crazy. And I know the movie's not going to be that good, but that cover's so good that I'll come back to it. And yeah, there were certain covers that, that I still, when I see them, I have an emotional some, some sort of a like ping where it's like, oh, yes. Oh, Drew, I'm, I got one for you. Demonoid. Demonoid's a great cover. <laughs> um, the, there's a crazy one. And this continued all the way through working in video stores. Just there were things that were so much fun to create. There's a there's two different covers for the Albert Pyong Caged Heat. Or no, yes, Caged Heat. And one of them is like a Raiders of the Lost Ark style poster. It's so good. And uh, yeah, just a lie. I love posters that are lies about what the actual film uh, is. April, were, were, you the, were you the girl who uh, brought the horror movies to your friends and kind of like dared them? Like, oh, I found this. You're going to watch this. I don't know if I like it. Yes, you will watch it. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I was so out of touch because I, I went to a Catholic school um, with a lot of privileged white people you know, we had, I had like a scholarship to go there or whatever. And so it was a really weird thing where sometimes I would make a friend and then uh, all of a sudden they wouldn't be my friend again. And I wouldn't know why. And then eventually in high school, my best friend kind of stopped hanging out with me. And my mom had to tell me that all those years, (laughs) parents were saying I was a bad influence. I think that the last one I lost my best friend after I made her watch Motel Hell with me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Like, she was very, very Christian, like, very, very Catholic. Yeah, that'll do it. And it was just like a thing where it kind of, like, destroyed her. And, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I had no idea. I I didn't realize that I was so subversive when I was. You were the the dark girl. I have a theory that there is that. The mistakes that we make as film viewers are the films that define us. And I I think if you go back and you ask people about the age-appropriate movies they saw, they're kind of a blur. Like, you remember that you saw a bunch of cartoons when you were a kid. You remember your parents saw you took you to see Disney, things like that. But you remember specifically the lightning bolt moments where some line got crossed and suddenly, oh my God, movies do that? And I, I think it's important. I think people, you know, they may have been mistakes to those kids at the time or to their parents at the time. But I guarantee at least half of those kids still remember some of those lightning bolt moments of movies you showed them, April, and that those movies are rattling around in them still like shrapnel, which is awesome. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Some other girl is talking to her friend saying, oh, my God, when I was 14, this girl I was friends with showed me motel hell. I hate (laughs) now I hate horror movies. (laughs) It's such a good movie. It's fun. It's totally fun. Oh, man. Uh, okay, so, April, here's another fun question. When you were growing up as a movie geek, doesn't have to be horror, did, do you remember a moment where you started to realize that not all movies were good? Some were sucky. I don't think I 
really realize that until I was even in college. Because I think that I've always had kind of an open heart and open mind to movies to just like see what they're going to be. You know, like one of my favorite movies as a kid was like Johnny Dangerously. And I, you know, love that movie with all my heart still because I was like, oh, I'm interested in what this is because it's different, even if mm-hmm. it may not be the best. Uh, I, if I if I remember correctly, that has some solid gags. We we're going to revisit it very soon. So. Yeah, it's only two months away. So oh, I go. fucking love that movie. I'll, I'm excited for when you guys talk about it. Then um, I mean, yeah, Amy Amy Heckerling, obviously. But mm-hmm. you know, I didn't I didn't know who Amy Heckerling was when I was watching it when I was a kid or anything. I was very young, and you know, just when you get into college, though, you just become like a stingy asshole about things, and you're just so like art house like. You know, only watch Lars von Trier or some bullshit. Yeah, we all go through phases, man. There, there, there's times where, like, when you're like 14, 15, 16, you don't want anything to do with animated movies. Then you hit 18 and you're like, what was I thinking? I was too cool for animated movies for like three years. And then you grow up and go, no, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And I still want to return to the animated movies that I watched when I was a kid. Like, if I just think about, like, Don Bluth and all of the dark shit that he was doing. Oh, talk to Drew. That's Drew's. That's Drew's ballpark right there. He loves Don Bluth. Drew, Go. I, I, he well, he changed. He, I think without him, we have no modern Disney because I think he he forced them to rethink how that studio was going to move forward when he left and he took all those animators with him. All the guys that they were counting on as sort of the next generation um, kind of walked out the door with him to make Secret of Nim, and they made a movie that Disney would have, I think, really been proud of had he been alive. So, yeah, I, I think without Don, the history of animation from that point forward looks different. I think Richard Williams is one of those guys who we we need him or there is no modern animation. Disney wasn't doing a very good job of safeguarding it when we were young. Um, the 80s were a drought. It is a very ugly, weird period for them. But yeah, I have lo- to say, Great Mouse Detective, which I defended on Twitter the other day because no. I was just watching it with my, my older sister. And I was just like, oh, my God, that was a good movie. I don't know if I appreciated it. When I was just so young when it came out. Some really inventive stuff in that. And that's but and see, that's the moment. I think Great Mouse Detective is the moment where the guys who were left at the studio decided Okay, we got to move forward. We got to figure this out. And they started really thinking about what does the future look like? How does animation move forward? Great Mouse Detective is inventive. There's some really great stuff in there towards the end where they started to use computers for the first time. Yeah, it's it, it's all those movies in that late 80s, even when they don't work, I, I think all have great sort of little footsteps towards them figuring out what they were again. April, what's your uh, favorite Don Bluth? You know, it changes. I think that I was I was obsessed with The Secret of Nim, but if I'm going to be honest with myself, then it's The, um, uh, the Land Before Time. Oh, nice. I, I thought you were going to take mine, uh, American Tale. Yeah, that's, it's like obviously a very solid one, but if I'm thinking about the one that made me cry the most, mm-hmm. <laughs> The Land Before Time. I remember Pizza had these... Um, little puppets that they were selling at the time that that, that came out. And I was really young, but I, I wanted to collect all the little puppets that they had of the dinosaurs. And, um, yeah, damn, that was, well there, I just got, I thought of a brand new, if, and when switchblade sisters ever retires, your next podcast can be the land before time series. One movie per episode. You go for a year. <laughs> yeah, there, there are, there are many, um, so, you you raising the the point about the toys. Um, one of the things that I I'm fascinated by is the ephemera that was important to us as kids. The things outside of the movies, but that were related to the movies that really that were really important to each of us because they're totally different for everybody. Everybody had that favorite thing. I'm just going to say mine. I'll let you guys talk. The Burger King Empire Strikes Back glasses. That's it. Yep. I recently found one of them and we bought it. Um, and we've been looking forever, but yeah, there's stuff like that where I, the ephemera is just as important to me. And, and it is, it's, it's funny. The sort of associations you have with things, you remembering those puppets doesn't surprise me. Like those things that get really important to us at certain key moments as film fans. I'm trying to think, I remember, oh my God, there was a nightmare before Christmas watch that they were giving out. Oh, I think my niece had that when I, when she was little. 
It was a big clunky thing, right? Yeah, it's like um, it's like just one of those plastic, like digital mm. watches from that you get at you know like a Rite Aid or CVS or something. You know what's uh, it's kind of telling, guys, is that the toys, those little giveaway toys that we remember, it's not necessarily you don't remember the generic toy giveaways. You remember the ones that are connected to the movies you love. And, you know, then it connects you to, oh, a night we went to dinner and I got that toy. So, you know, it's all about the love of the movie, even though it is commercialization. It's because you love that movie. If you didn't love the movie, you wouldn't really remember the toy that well. <laughs> I, I got cured of it after a move where we lost everything because a box, quote, fell off a truck. But it was Ugh. a box full of comics and magazines and toys. And April, what fell off the truck that you your parents lost? I got one, too, but. We, we all got a, tr- a box that our parents lost. Oh, my God. I have no idea. My grandparents, when I moved out with my mom when I was in high school, um, I feel like we lost a ton of shit. So I, actually, we, we, we all lived in like the basement area of my grandparents' house, so we couldn't keep a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So it was actually really uh, good for us to, to not be hoarders. Yeah. Well, my, my parents split up and... Um, Several years later, my dad ended up selling the family house. And then about a year after that, my mom says to him, what happened to all that stuff up in the attic? He said, oh, that stuff was just junk. I threw it out. In that junk was the surviving Fangoria's, probably 200 decent comic books, a whole ton of baseball cards, action figures, not just Star Wars. I mean, I'm going to need a moment. I'm going to go cry right now. I, uh, I'm. I'm, I'm thinking of my refrigerator box, and yeah, I'm, I'm getting real sad again. But it's it it does cure you, and I think it's best when you're a kid. When and I love that they made things for movies that now you really wouldn't get tie-ins for. '80s kids had crazy, crazy toys tied into things like Nightmare on Elm Street or Aliens or Rambo toys that in no way should have existed because they were pitched at the wrong age entirely. Yeah. Um, I still have mixed feelings about, and here's here's a good 80s topic in general. I still have mixed feelings about the way Freddy Krueger evolved as sort of a stand-up comedian. Oh. And little by little got defanged, and we, we haven't really gotten to, we haven't even talked about the first film yet on the show, so we're about to get there. All right, I would like to hear April's take on Freddy Krueger th- on the whole throughout the franchise. That's what I'm curious about, too, is, is where do you stand on him? What, what, what's your take on Freddy Krueger, April? I feel like, you know, I was so young when I started watching those that I felt like he was terrifying throughout the franchise when I was younger. Now I can watch them as an adult and say, oh, we were getting really cheesy right here. Um, And, you know, they were leaning into that comedy. But when you're young and you're watching those, it's still scary as shit, you know? (laughs) Interesting, because I I think I, I was 14 for the first one. And then I was working theaters for all the others. So it felt to me like they were I, – I watched it happen and felt disconnected from the series after a certain point because I just felt like they were getting silly. And I I imagine if I had seen them younger, they probably would have been very different. They, the boys I showed the first one, though, recently, and I was shocked, it didn't really land. Um, they weren't scared by it. They thought it was okay. They thought it was fun, but didn't scare them at all. Yeah, I, I just think for an adult viewer, like April said, uh, I think the wisecracks uh, really suck the menace and the scare out of it. And on a larger scale, what you've done is you've made a buffoon out of a terrifying character who killed and perhaps raped children. And now he's cracking wise like a game show host. And it just feels not only tacky, but like defeated, defeated the character. Well, in general, where do you stand? Here's here's a larger question. Do horror series in general work, or does horror, by exposure, lose its impact? Do monsters the, become less interesting the longer we look at them? Is there a horror series where eight, nine films in, you could still be scared of anything, really? No, I don't think so. I mean, all like a lot of them, I think, smartly lean into the humor because they understand it. I mean, I think that's one of the is the inevitable ending of every horror series the Abbott and Costello crossover movie because I think that I think that really should be where they all end up I think I think we just need a new a new team that we throw at every modern monster once the franchise is dead that way you can't go back you salt the earth it's it's over <laughs> I mean I think it's one of if you 
if you can get to a point where you're still scaring people and you lean into the humor because that's just inevitable, I think that's something that could be more possible. I still enjoy all the child play movies. Well, they've gotten so weird, haven't they? That has I, I give him credit for this. Don Mancini realized at some point that he can't make the same film twice. So every one of those movies is a totally different batshit yeah, crazy. That franchise has very specific phases, and that, that alone <laughs> makes it interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, as you're moving through the 80s, um, as sort of a horror fan, I, I assume a lot of it is is home video. When did theatrical really become important to you? And what were the first big like theatrical communal horror experiences that you remember, April? The like theatrical stuff wasn't super integral to me because um, I grew up in Michigan and we had both USA up all night and the Saturday and Sunday um, afternoon um, horror matinees. Ooh, nice. So, and uh, Kayla Janice, um, uh, the writer of um, House of Psychotic Women. Yay, we love Kayla. Kayla is, is an old friend from Draft House days and is probably, I'll say it, the world's leading expert on horror cinema. Oh, her... The biggest brain. Like, people call me an expert. I am a dwarf compared to her. Yeah, the biggest brain. And, you know, she, she talks about that in, in House of Psychotic Women of, um, you know, like the, the matinee programs that were coming out of Detroit. And that's, you know, what we would get. And so going to the theater wasn't really big for us. All right. One topic that I definitely wanted to come up uh, and, and throw some titles at April and you, Drew, sure, why not? Uh, but I have a list here of horror films of the 80s directed by women. And I would like to get a capsule review from you, April, if you've seen them. Uh, I, I bet you've seen most of them. Uh, let us start with Humanoids from the Deep. Oh, my God, it's been too long. But it just fucking blew me away. I, just, I could not believe that a woman directed it. And I was just like, yes! <laughs> right, and But, yeah, give, give our listener context if they don't remember. Why is it ostensibly or uh, potentially odd that a woman directed this movie? I mean, it's like, okay, there's like a half man, half fish thing uh, in like a small fishing village. And there's, it's like definitely a lot of raping of women. You got the entire movie in like one full sentence. That's, yep, the that's whole. it. That's pretty much the whole film. <laughs> it is, but it is like, yeah, it is. There's, I think something that people forget uh, when women direct like certain kinds of uh, rape centric content uh, or things where women get violated is that they almost are more brutal about it. And it's, it's kind of shocking. And I'm always thinking of like, now I'm thinking about like revenge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think the, the evolution was throughout my whole childhood. I thought, well, this is a movie about monsters raping women. So to me, it's weird that a woman directed it. And then I got to be an adult and I'm like, why would that be weird? Why would it have to be a guy? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. It's like the exorcism of demons. You know, like I think a lot of women who gravitate towards horror feel this on a very deep level and kind of feel like they have to be cathartic about it in some manner, you know. Right. And you touched on something I think is very interesting is that if a woman is directing a rape scene, obviously it comes from a very different perspective. Whereas like the guy who did Death Wish 2 was, in my opinion, kind of getting off on his rape scene. Eyes of a Stranger. Eyes of a Stranger. The One of the most unpleasant movies we've watched yet for this podcast with that kind of stuff. And yeah, you're right. It's there are times where the radical difference in terms of how just the basic scene is shot uh, really shine through. And that that material can be where it, it makes all the difference in the world as to whether I can sit through it. Yeah, it's, it's really great right now that we have um, so many examples of, uh, you know, how like a rape in a genre film or something might be shot by a woman because you can literally put them side by side and see how the editing and the, the uh, photography match up. So it's hard to explain to people what a female gaze is and because it's like the like the excision of certain things rather yeah. than kind of the addition. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's really nice to just have these visual, visual examples of that. It's one of the things that, that you don't realize when you're growing up in the midst of it. When I was in the 80s, there were movies that felt like speed bumps on the way things were normally done. And frequently, when I went back and looked at those films later, I connected the dots and realized they were directed by women. Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a terrific example of that, where the frank way that Heckerling handles sexuality in that film is so much more mature and grounded than 
films that look exactly like it in every other way. And it it's something yeah, I mean it it's crazy the way it but it's it's when you're young and you're in it you don't realize what that is. You don't realize what the difference is. And growing up and then looking back at that era that we grew up in, I I recognize how much of the programming that went on was from an entirely or not I don't want to say entirely, but from a very toxic point of view. And I really feel like this examination of 80s culture going from the beginning, I'm I'm much more clear-eyed about it now and much more aware of how it was playing on me and how it gotten inside me. And like much of what I love about film now is a reaction to that or is a response to that. But it's undeniable. There were things, there were male gaze things that were programmed into us because of the films we watched. And that's why it's so important, those occasional moments where something pushed back or was different. And man, you really felt it. It felt like a shockwave of some kind. Yeah, but you just can't put your finger on it. Slumber Party Massacre. Oh, one or two. You choose. Well. (laughs) You mean you look at the poster alone and it looks like nothing but men made this movie. It's a guy with his legs spread Four women on the floor huddled together, and he's holding a drill down by between his legs that looks very much like a long, twirly penis. And, and then you see that it was directed and written by not only women, but active, known like, feminists. Rita Mae Brown wrote this movie. <laughs> what, do you th- what do you think of it? Yeah, fuck. It's, I love them both. You're describing two, two's poster, and um, I, I love both equally for very different reasons. But I think that to me, the subversiveness and the playfulness about this and kind of the, the statement on uh, modern slashers of that time, I think that that's evident to me. It may not have been evident to other people who are just like, yeah, of course, this drill thing is hilarious. This is great. Slash up all those women. But there's a certain knowingness behind it that I, I, I'm still, I still gravitate towards those movies more than any other slashers of that era. There's no doubt watching the first one that it is tongue is firmly in cheek. There is a very, very strong sense of already having identified what the trappings of the genre are. And that's what's so great about it is it's it's very early for them to have already nailed everything and to be making a film that's such a great reaction to it that it's I I think there is. A case that a lot of filmmaking can also be called film criticism in a way, and this is very much a criticism of the genre that existed up to that point. It's terrific. April, any memories of Jackie Kong's The Being? Oh, yeah. Um, It's so funny because I was just talking about that in relation to Blood Diner, too. um, Nice. uh, It's it's less in my memory, except for I love the monsters. (laughs) Like, I, I can remember kind of like the the multi-saber toothed goopy sloppy monster right and i'm a big uh, sloppy monster fan like a big cronenberg sloppy wet oh. monster fan you know that stuff's disgusting any any i don't have any do you have any recollection of sorority house massacre yeah you know i do it's so funny um it i think has a really good song <laughs> You know what? For some of these movies, that's, you know, that, that's, that, that's what sticks. Yeah. Yep. Yep. A little girl's brother. A little girl's brother kills the whole family but her. She escapes by hiding in the basement. He is committed. She grows up with a new family, eventually going to college where she joins a sorority. Due to memory block, she doesn't remember the, that the sorority house was her childhood house. Her brother seems to. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot of legwork, man. <laughs> I would love how they would just get more and more comp complicated with the lore because you know like it was going to be the same story you know someone was going to get slashed so they just had to get more and more complex plus it's a lot of good it's a lot of good act one filler of he 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 screwed her over and she betrayed him and back 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 drew we'll get to this in 86 sorority house massacre i cannot wait um i have a few others here you mentioned blood diner oh yeah you're a fan I'm a big fan, uh, although I have not seen it in years. But that's one of the reasons I was talking about. It. I was like, yeah, I just remember there's a, an interesting scene where a guy gets chained up by the legs. And yeah, that I, I remember that. <laughs> All right. We are going to discuss a biggie now for a few minutes. Uh, let us discuss the phenomenal Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. 
Oh shit. Um, I mean, what do you say? Okay. So where'd you, where'd you see it the first time? I don't even know. I think I must've been like 12 or something. I saw that one kind of relatively late outside of the eighties. So, and was it, was it one of the, I, for me, it was one of those, I probably called my friends immediately like, whoa, I got one for Saturday. No, it's weird. I mean, I saw it around the same time, obviously, as The Lost Boys, but I kept getting them mixed up, which made me think that The Lost Boys was better. But then when I watched it later on, I was just like, what am I thinking of? <laughs> yeah, I was working at, uh, I, was, I was managing the theater by that point, and when we got near dark, it was, nobody knew what it was, the poster didn't really sell anybody that worked there with me and um i did the uh the test screening the tech screening the night before we put it out i thought it was awesome like i couldn't get over it and what struck me first was okay what's the aliens reflection that's happening here what's happening i it feels like everybody walked off of aliens onto this what is going on and i didn't know anything about the backstory or who Catherine bigelow was at that point i hadn't seen the loveless it hit me out of the blue, and I took four or five different friends back to the theater while it was playing. We had it for two weeks, and I made sure people got a chance to see it. Um, I I love that movie, man. It is funny without sacrificing its kind of terror and, and tension, I think. It's got one of the best set pieces of that year. That whole bar scene is it's an incredible sequence and just the staging, the menace in that sequence from the moment they let it be known, no one's walking out of here. It's there's real danger in that room. And that's just those actors. I love Paxton. I love Jeanette Goldstein in it. It's a wonderful sequence in my opinion, because horror is often like a tug of war with the audience. We want to see horror. We want to see something nasty that we can't see in the real world. We want to see something horrific and shocking and neat. But on the other hand, we are we don't want to see innocent characters get slaughtered, even if they're just nobody bar patrons. So that sequence plays like a you want to see it, don't you? No, I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. And it is just uh, it's hypnotic. It's wonderful. You know, there's the DNA of horror in every movie that she makes um, because she understands it, I think, so well, like how to how to make a cutaway feel horrific. You know, just the, the ceiling fans that keep um going round and round in that bar and um, kind of shadow everything. And, you know, it just makes everything feel uncertain and off kilter. And there's just some kind of artistry that she understands there. She also, the iconography in that movie is so clean and it strikes me the way the Hitcher does where it feels very urban legend. It feels very, um, there's, there's not a lot of plot necessarily, but the vibe, you just like hanging out in that experience. And there is, Something about the casting of both Adrian Pazdar and Jenny Wright in that film, they're both so pretty and so odd, and they kind of look like each other a little bit. They both have the same weird nose-mouth thing happening, and I I love that she is such a strong visual filmmaker from frame one that even the stuff in that movie where I don't necessarily think all the connective tissues there doesn't matter to me. Oh, I that just, whole sequence where they break out of the where they break out of the motel and the shafts of light are hitting them like 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 drops of acid it's beautiful it's, it's controlled man she just had control from day one it's just it's 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 an abstract thing that people say all the time but you don't make a movie like that unless you go to the set with a vision of it looking like that here i want the newspapers on the inside of the car she's trying to tape it up they shoot a hole through it the light comes shafting you know the shaft comes sh- sh- pounding through oh it's great it's great i hope she does another horror film <laughs> I think that she will. I mean, but I think people also underestimate the fact um, that Catherine Bigelow is uh, a writer of everything that she does. So even if mm. someone applies her the story, she kind of rewrites things to an inch of what they were. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, one of those little hidden secrets. And um, she has so much control because she's it's written on the page. Let's close out this topic with a, a 1989 horror film that I think is pretty fantastic. Drew's half and half on it. April, what do you think of Pet Cemetery? <gasps> I love Pet Cemetery so much. <laughs> good, good, good to hear. Now, our, our relative complaint is that the leads, Dale Midkiff and Denise Crosby, kind of lack the power that the film needs. Other than that, I think it's pretty great. But I agree with Drew that those leads are not... 
Yeah, my, yeah. my problems have very, very little to do with Mary Lambert. I think she's she's on fire in that film. And the thing she gets right in that movie is she's unafraid to do some dirty shit in that film. The, the stuff she does with a little kid in that movie, unacceptable. And I'm all for it. Oh, and the sister. She understands that that's what that has to be. If you're gonna, if you're going to have Gage running around, Gage has got to really make you unhappy when he shows up. Gage scares the shit out of me. I rewatched it like last year and I was expecting it to be kind of like a fun romp. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. That ankle flashing. I'm, I am. It's dark. The whole, the, the, the premise itself that, you know, there's a patch of land that will bring animals back to life. Okay. That's clever and potentially fun, but the book and the movie are both dark as shit. (laughs) There's very little humor in either. And, uh, uh, so did you see that one young? Yeah, I saw that one pretty young, and that, that imprinted on me uh, pretty, yeah. pretty quickly. Uh, that one and the second one, too, um, uh, around the same time, I think. Um, and that's a good segue, because Pet Cemetery has a wonderful cat, and I did want to ask you, on the record, to tell us a little bit about your cat. Oh, on the record, yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, well, my cat, well, the cat that I had for 18 years was named Turkey, and she passed away in... Um, September last year. Sorry. But um, she was wonderful. And I'm so happy to ease the pain of that with um, uh, the other cat that we have named Zoli. Z-O-L-E-Y is how I think my husband is spelling it right now. We'll <laughs> see if he changes it. Named after an old Italian man that he once knew. Uh, <laughs> and he was 22 pounds last year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, I, we haven't weighed him uh, since I got back from vacation, but I think, fingers crossed, he's going to be down to 18 pounds. Nice. Oh, good. Good, good. I, I like fat cats, but not too fat, you know? It was getting to be a problem where, like, he would lie on his back with just all of his limbs out because he couldn't oh. lay anywhere else. <laughs> so now he's not doing that anymore, but it just felt like he had rolled on his back and just given up on life, and we were like, oh, we have to do something about this. <laughs> Okay, and now we're going to end with our favorite segment. Every time we have a guest on, we ask them to write down a secret list of underrated 80s films. That is the only designation. It is up to the guest to decide what the word underrated, underloved, underappreciated, whatever. So, April, give give us a first off your list, please. Well, I mean, I I brought this one up earlier, but I do think that Motel Hell needs to be embraced. Okay, give us your, uh, like, we're in a a court of law, and you are pro, all right? First, what's the tagline, April? Just give us, what's the tagline for that movie? Oh, my God, I don't even know what the tagline was. There's all kinds of critters. No, it takes all kinds of critters to make Uncle Vincent's fritters. Oh, yeah! Uh, you know, uh, before I want to get your ca- your mini review on this, but uh, that remake, there's been a remake bouncing around for literally 10 years in uh, all around MGM, I think, was trying to make it. And several filmmakers that we all mutually know have pitched for this. And I'm just sending this out there into the ether. If their Motel Hell remake is still in the works, the three of us will write the screenplay together. <laughs> there. I'm telling you, I could, yeah, definitely write this. I'm I'm already there. I've thought about it for most of my life. Okay, so what do you love about it? Uh, is it is it uh, nostalgia and current, or is it mostly nostalgia? No, it's it's a little bit current too because if I watch it now, I see certain things about it that I. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to get all arty farty on this, but there are certain things about the production design of it and the the look of and feel of it that almost have like an expressionistic feel, like almost from like the silent era. And um, especially when you have like these shots of the, the head, you know, because in Motel Hell, they, they bury these people up to their necks and they cut out their vocal cords so that they can only make the ha ah, 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 like a weird, almost yeah. like pig horking sound. And it's really quite frightening. And that's yes. something that you see, I think, actually in Nicholas Pesci's um, film, The Eyes of My Mother. He, if he hasn't seen Motel Hell, I would be very surprised because, you know, what's done to some of the characters in that is really reminiscent of what you're, we're seeing, maybe in a more, you know, as I said, a, you know, a little bit funnier style in Motel Hell, but it's still there. And um, that's very primal and still so scary. And yeah, I absolutely love it. 
it is legitimately terrifying. And there are some kills in that movie that are legitimately shocking. And then in other alternate scenes, it's legitimately broadly funny. And, and I think that's what makes that movie so interesting is that it does both pretty well. It uh, That was the first Fangoria cover that I ever brought home was the Motel Hell cover. And part of what made me pick that issue up was the insanity of the image. It was so crazy and so extreme, the pig head with the chainsaw. And I was like, okay, what? And then I took it home. And then the Motel Hell article, some of the images in there, the heads in the ground, the uh, the shed, it, the surreality of those images really stuck. I didn't see Motel Hell for almost eight or nine years after that. So it was, I just had those few pictures and that line about the fritters in my head. There was a whole movie that I constructed by the time I finally got around to seeing it that was not that film. Um, and uh, it's, it is singular. It really doesn't feel like anybody else's stuff. There's a lot of Texas Chainsaw ripoffs right around then. It doesn't feel like that to me. It feels like it's doing its own thing and it's borrowing from all sorts of seed, but not a, there's nothing that you can just say, okay, that's clearly this. It's its, its own movie. Yeah, and, and yet at the same time, the critical reaction to that from mainstream critics also said that, um, you know, it was a like a, an imitator of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which when you see it, you know, without that kind of context of being in that release time, I think it's pretty obvious that it's not. Uh, so the horror geeks, if you were uh, on the fence about Motel Hell, I know Drew and I both dug it back when we covered it. Now you should watch it. She's an expert. What else you got, April? Uh, I think people are going to revolt, but uh, I have to say Haunted Honeymoon. Oh, we haven't done it yet. We haven't gotten there. I saw it. Like, I know I saw it with my mother, probably opening weekend, and neither of us thought it was very good. And then I have not seen frame one of it since then, and I'm obviously willing to give it an open uh, heart when we revisit it. But I'm glad when somebody likes a film that is generally forgotten or disliked. Why do you like it, April? I mean, it is so faithfully satirizing the genre of the old horror films. Um, the way that it's shot is, I think it's impeccable. You know, it's like shot for shot, definitely um, recreating some scenes for tension, but, you know, doing it in a way that feels still kind of old-timey comedy. It's not like a, you know, a, a hilarious modern comedy, but it is, it's very kind of lowbrow in the sense. And I and I love the, the dumb, dumb, dumb set pieces that they have. Like there's one, for instance, where Gene Wilder's character is um, inspecting something and he goes into the basement and he finds a dead body in like a laundry chute or something. And he, uh, his, the legs are hanging over the side of the chute or uh, out of the side of the the basket. And then his body is standing up. So when someone comes Mm. down, he like does a routine where he like moves the legs. Oh yeah. The the dead leg, he's pretending the dead legs are his. He's doing shtick. I vaguely recall that drew. I'm looking forward to haunted honeymoon now. Um, well, I'm excited because I do, I, I, I have a lot of affection for Gene Wilder, a lot of affection for Gilda Radner, and Dom, I Dom DeLuise. I, and Dom DeLuise. And I want that film to surprise me because I saw it one time in the theater, wasn't in the right place to enjoy it at that point, and have never seen it since. And certainly am open to being surprised by it because I, I like all the elements. She nailed a point that we covered briefly in uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid which is I enjoyed Steve Martin being Steve Martin. But in 1983, I had no context whatsoever for film noir. So when I saw it when I was 30, I thought it was a lot more clever. When I was a kid, I had seen Frankenstein. So therefore, young, young Frankenstein made sense to me. Haunted Honeymoon, I would have had no context for. I wouldn't have got even why it was black and white at that, at that point, really. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to that. What else you got, April? Okay, what else is on my list? Um, oh yeah, I also had Johnny Dangerously on my list because I think that more people should see that. What's your, what are the best gags? I still, to this day, could probably sing the entire Weird Al Yankovic song, This Is The Life. Oh God, do I love that song. Oh my God, you just opened up a door in my head because I'd completely forgotten about that. What up? You're Uh dead for a real long time, you just can't, oh, just can't, See, I don't remember the song, I remember that he did the song. I actually still use the, um... 
the mangled profanity from the Italian, the oh, uh, the bad guy gangster. Fargan ice hole. I'll call my kids Fargan ice holes sometimes, and when we're joking around, and uh, and it's I think that's just lodged in there permanently. Thanks to airplane and top secret, I think we all grew up in love with this kind of spoof uh, satire. If they're done well, I think that the screenplay is half inspired, half kind of limp. It has some really great moments, and uh, it has some pretty, you know, I don't, Joe Piscopo is very funny, but I think Michael Keaton is very funny, and it has one of my all-time favorite performers who, what did I just see her in? Oh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's got Mary Lou Henner. Anything with Mary Lou Henner gets a gold star. Anything. Uh, I will say this, uh, actually, um, that I think there is one terrific line Piscopo delivers. It shoots through schools. Which I think is a terrible thing uh, and a joke that would never exist now. Um, but that character, the way that character is written at that point in that spoof, that's a really funny running gag in that movie. I want to thank you, April Wolf, for joining us on this patron episode. Our This is only for the very special listeners, and you've given them a fantastic episode. Drew, I think we'll invite April back again around 87, 88, yes? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the standing invite. And uh, I want to encourage people to um, please listen to the podcast and also uh, follow April on social media. Read the uh, the article she writes. Um, there are a lot of voices out there right now in film. It's hard to figure out necessarily who you should or shouldn't be reading. I think uh, one of the reasons that we invite these guests on is so that you guys will go read their work as well. And um, it's nice to have you in Lafka. It was nice to have you here. Thank you very much for doing it, April. Oh, thank you guys so much. This is such a lo- lovely pleasure for a w- Wednesday night or whenever this is going to air. <laughs> well, happy New Year to you and your family and your kitty, and Happy New Year to all our listeners, and we will be back next week with a regular episode. Thanks, all. Thanks, <laughs> all.